Good morning. My name's Tim. I'm one of the elders here. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is uh, Rachel next to me. She's a life group leader. She serves in kids' work as well, and she's going to read the chapter for us. So you might want to open the chapter um, and pay attention. I'm going to do the same. Okay, thanks. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Marsei on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Marseiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the meaning so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go on your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went on their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. 
They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we thank you so much for this assembly. We thank you we're able to join together, to worship you, to know the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, to celebrate baptisms, to open up your word. We do pray this morning that as we hear this word opened up, that we would be of soft heart, Lord God, that we would be of open ear to you, Lord God. We, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to bring revelation to our hearts. We pray that you would soften us where we tend to be stony-hearted. We pray you'd help us to receive what you want to reveal to us wholeheartedly this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, we, we want to, I just want to pray against the spirit of apathy. I want to pray, Father, that you would come against the spirit of rebellion the spirit of pride, spirit, any, any distractions that might be here. We pray, Lord, help us to revere your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I was in year nine, I think, uh, and I was in maths class chatting to my, my friend Connor. He's an Irish guy. He's the, head, uh, the, the captain of the football team, and he's a massive Man United fan. I'm talking to him about football, and, uh, and I'm talking to him about the team I support at the time, uh, which was Newcastle United. They were doing really well in the late 90s, and I was started to follow them, and I, I was a fan. And he starts to laugh at me. And I'm like, what, what are you laughing at? He's like, you're not a fan of Newcastle. What are you talking about? I am. He says to me, name five of their players. <laughs> and I was like, I'm exposed. I don't support them as much as I thought I did. I don't know much about them. He exposed me in that moment. I thought, oh dear, he, this, is a, this is a super fan of a team. He knows all about their history, Man United. He knows all about their players. And, uh, and here I was on a bit of a bandwagon. So in the, in, in the, lo- in the following weeks and months, I went, uh, found a, uh, a, a news agent that sold a Newcastle United magazines. And I, I started to read up on them and know about, a bit about their history and, and know a bit about uh, the players. And I could name the whole squad and I knew what, what they did. And, and I decided, I need to, if I'm going to know about this, if I'm going to say I'm a fan of this, I need to know about them. I don't just know what position in the league they are and, and, and go, yeah, they won today. Or they lost. I need to know a bit about them. And today we see a people who are saying, we need to know what this God has to say to us himself. We can't proclaim to be his people. We don't know about him. We don't know what he has called us to be. The sad truth is that one of the biggest threats to Christianity, one of the biggest threats to your faith, our faith, is biblical illiteracy. We don't know our Bibles. We may be very passionate and we may even celebrate passion for passion's sake. But God's called us to specific things. He's a specific God. We, we want unity with God, but unity with God is not found in ignorance of him. We need to know him. And in the beginning of this chapter, we, we've had this, uh, this story of Nehemiah uh, and God has put this burden upon his heart. Go and rebuild my city. Go and collect people together by my grace. And he gets the favour of the king 
and he starts to build, practically building the walls. And they've come to this point where they say, okay, we've built, we've, we've tried to, to come back to be the people of God, but we can't really be the people of God if we're not letting him speak to our hearts. If we're not letting him decide who we're supposed to be from within. And so they say, open, open the scriptures to us. They get Ezra, who the book before is about Ezra, uh, and these books are very much in tandem, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they get him, the priest, to read to them. And, and one of the first things that I want us to just focus on here is how they approach the word of God. How, how they approach to God. It's so noticeable in here. How do they read the word of God? They read it as, as those who believe it is the word of God. They read it as those who, who stop, as we just did at the end of our worship. We need to just stop. We haven't got just a program to get through. We need to stop and recognise who we come before. We need to recognise, God, if you are who you say you are, we don't just carry on. There are times when we say, God, you need to... We need to open our hearts to you. We need to be sober. And there are a few things in here that you can notice in just this first eight verses. They, they, they read the word from a platform. They read from early morning until midday. They, Ezra is above all the people. That they all came. Anyone who could understand. It wasn't just the men in the temple. It was men, women, anyone who can understand. Come and stand for hours. They stood as they heard. All these things together, they show us a, a reverent people for the word of God. They, they, they gave the word of God a high place. Honour. Honour was given to God's word. Reverence as they stood. Attention. They gave it proper attention as they came for hours and stood and listened. And they got help to understand. They didn't assume, well, that's nice. It makes me think a lot of things and I'll go away and I'll ponder that. No, they, they immediately had people help them to understand what does this actually mean? You may have heard this said before. If you, if you were to write a letter to a group of people and they all took different meaning from it, you might be a bit perturbed. No, I meant something by it. God means something by his word. And, and they were humble enough to, to, to revere it, to stand, to listen, for, for it to be high. They held it above them. It wasn't next to them. Yeah, equal. It wasn't below them. No, this is high above us. And they needed help to understand. And they were, they were very happy to let that happen. You see, these people approached the word of God as it is the word of God. It says in this chapter, the great God. The great God. This is not just a, an ideology. It's not just a religion for them. We come to our maker. If you read in uh, Psalm 139, this is the God that they came before. The one who knows the number of hairs on our head. Pretty easy for me. The, ones, the one who, who, who knows when we stand up. When we sit down, he knows a thought before it's come out of our mouth. The God who I cannot escape from. If I flee from you, you're there. If I go to the depths, you'll find me. If I ascend to the heights, you're with me. 
This God is the God that they tremble before. And so that there's something in them that, that reveres. Now let him speak to us. Let him speak to me. As I said, one of the big challenges for us in our, in our day and age is biblical illiteracy. And one uh, uh, Bible lecturer in a university, he gives a, he, a great article I read by him. And he says this, in, in, he surveys and he quizzes his students as they come in. These, mostly 95% of them are Christians. He wants to know what is your Bible knowledge. And he said most of them on their, on their quiz for what their Bible knowledge is coming in, they get like 50%, which is a fail grade. These are people that say, God is my king and my ruler, but I don't really know his word. He says this, in the most recent survey, only half were able to identify which biblical book begins with the line, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Barely more than half knew where to turn in the Bible to read about the first Passover. Most revealing in my mind is the fact that my students are generally unable to sequence major stories and events from the biblical meta-narrative. These students may know isolated Bible trivia. Maybe you think, yeah, I know Bible trivia. 84% knew, for instance, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But their struggle to locate key stories and their general inability to place those stories in the Bible's larger plotline betrays a serious lack of intimacy with the text. Even though a full 86% of them identified the Bible as their primary source for knowledge about God and faith. It is our primary source. It was their primary source, and yet, don't really know it. Want to know God? Want to know God? Want to be like the Israelites in chapter 8? Now speak to us. We're going to stand attentive. We're going to listen. We're going to, we're going to respond. He goes on to say later on, uh, it's impossible, excuse, excuse me, some of them have a difficult to impossible time explaining what they believe, what it means, and what the implications of their beliefs are for their lives. There is, no, there is more at stake here than a lack of basic biblical and theological knowledge, of course. Inarticulacy undermines the possibility of reality. So let's just think about that. Inarticulacy, inarticulacy undermines the possibility of reality. So for instance, religious faith, practice and commitment can be no more than vaguely real when people cannot talk much about them. How true is it for you if you say, I'm very committed to this. Committed to what? Well, I can't really explain it. How can you stand by uh, and say, this is, means everything to me? What, what, what is that? Can you explain it? To me? I, can't, it's, I can't really get my head around it. He says here, articulacy fosters reality. If I can articulate it, if I'm clear where I stand, if I've got Bible knowledge, then I know, where I, I know what, whom I belong to. I know him. I know that he is my God. And, and their heart is one that would please the heart of God. He would delight he would be delighted with their hearts as they come to him here. It says in Isaiah 66, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. 
God's self-proclamation. Heaven is my throne. I sit enthroned in heaven with beings that we can't even imagine and describe, worshipping him, in awe of him, bowing down to him, crying, holy, holy, holy. The earth is his footstool. He's unlike anything we've ever known. He is the holy of holies. And he says, what would you build for me? This is what we're looking at in Nehemiah, building, building towards what God has got for us in Hope Church, in the wider church, in the kingdom of God. What would you build for me? That What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one who I want to look on. This is the one who I will focus on. This is one who has my attention. He who is humble, who comes under, under my word. He who is reverent before me. He who, who, who is contrite in spirit. That is someone who recognises their need for God. God's focus is on those who recognise, I need him. I need help. I know the sinfulness of my heart. He's not just an extra add-on. God's heart delights in a heart that says, I know, I know I need him. I know I need him and trembles at my word. So he would be delighted with their approach. How is your approach to the word of God? Are you someone who delights in the word of God? Are you someone who would walk away easily? Or are you somebody who says, no, I'm going to stand I'm going to revere. Now I want to talk about four of their appropriate responses. Four appropriate responses to the word of God. It's conviction, cleansing, celebration, and then concrete obedience. First of all, there is conviction. As we look at verse 9, they, the law brought conviction to them. They had been a people who had been without the word of God together. They had been a people who had not gathered in this type of way in the, the city of God, in one assembly, reverently standing, letting, letting a, a priest open up the word to them. And now when they had done that, what it had brought in verse 9, you'll see they're weeping. There is conviction upon them. Oh, we've been homeless without this. We've, we've not been as God has called us to be. It says in, uh, in, in Romans uh, 3 verse 20, through knowledge of the law comes knowledge of sin. As the law has been opened up to them, they, they understand this is, this is far above us. This is high. I cannot attain it. As they understand the law opened up to them, as, as God displays, this is what I'm like. This is who I am. Their hearts are are brought to a place of conviction. I cannot attain that. I, I can't reach what God, who God is, and I can't attain what he requires of me. And there's a conviction that weighs heavy on their heart. You know, Jesus, Jesus didn't, didn't come and lower the bar. Jesus came and, and he said, you've heard it said, you know, don't murder. Well, I say anyone who looks on a brother with hatred has murdered him in his heart. You think, goodness, I can't attain this. I can't. There's a conviction that comes to us when we recognise the holiness of God, the, the heights of his 
might and his worthiness, his holiness. We can't reach that high and there's a conviction that comes upon us. What, what do we do then? A recognition of the holiness of God and the holy requirements of God and how far they fall short. It brings them to a place of weeping. Conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. But it is found when we approach the word as they did. They were eager. Speak to us. We'll be attentive. We recognise your voice. We're, we're reverent towards it. We want to hear you. Conviction is much more likely to come to us, the work of the Holy Spirit, when we actually stop. When we actually honour his word. When we actually say, you decide. You speak. It says at the end of Psalm 139 that I quoted earlier on. It says, search me, O God. And know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's their hearts. God, you search me. We don't tell you what to do. We don't tell you whether we prefer your ways or not. And we're in a... We're in a in a generation now where it's becoming a lot more like that, where we have, have the Bible alongside us or below us and we say, if there are bits that I don't like, I just move on to the next verse. If there are bits that I disagree with and I have an issue with God, actually, that's not the heart of the people of God at all. They would say, God, you search me. You, you tell me if there's any way about me that's grievous to you and then you lead me. And this is their heart, and in, with that heart they come under this great conviction. We come under the Bible. And we, we trust, as it says in Hebrews 4, the word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces, it says, bone and marrow. It gets to the heart. It exposes the darkness in us. And so we pray, God, God, pierce our hearts. As Luke came earlier and just said, God, God, you've got to do this work in us. It's got to be a work of God that he does in us as he exposes things. We've got to say, God, we come to your word. It is living and active. Let it pierce our hearts. And we need to have hearts that are repentant. True conviction, it doesn't lead to us saying, yeah, I really need to do something about that. Yeah, I really need to, I really should work on that. When God convicts our hearts, it's a matter of saying, God, I'm sorry. I repent. There's a, there's, a, there's a sense of sorrow. They, they wept. There's a sorrow, a soberness that perhaps often we've lost. If your understanding of the grace of God has, has led you to a place of sort of saying, well, just, we just chill out, really. The grace of God, just chill. It doesn't really matter. I'm not really too concerned with being alert to my heart's digressions. I just live with what I really feel comfortable with that's that's a misunderstanding of the grace of God says this in Titus 2 for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness, from all lawlessness, 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If the grace of God is leaving us looking no different to our unbelieving colleagues, then we haven't understood the grace of God. If the grace of God doesn't mark us out at all from the world, we've completely misunderstood the grace of God. The grace of God leads us to renounce worldliness. It it has appeared to us to bring salvation and train us to renounce worldly passions, to to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. This is the, the grace of God to us. And so we need to be a people who understand, I need to come to this word reverently. I need to stop. I need to let it speak for itself. I need to get intimate with it. I love that phrase that he said, there's a lack of intimacy. Yeah, I can, I can quote lots of verses here and there. And I can use it to back up my arguments, actually. No, I let it speak to me. I let it change my heart. I let the word of God be... See, see, we can let the word of God... We can treat the word of God a bit like a drunk person treats a lamppost. We can use it to lean on. But it's supposed to illuminate. It's supposed to illuminate our hearts. It's supposed to open up our eyes. And so we've got to be a people to say, God... We, we want to come reverently. And perhaps even now you just feel, God, I don't do that. And there's something in you maybe that feels, God, I don't even, I've never done that. I've never revered your word. I've never really given it the space and time to say, confront me, Lord, confront me. David in his psalm is saying, God, I want you to confront me. When's the last time you felt God confronted you? confronted your heart. Perhaps it was, well, I, that was the day before I got saved because then I got saved. And, but we're supposed to be a people who say, God, change us, change us, change us. Confront my heart. Let me know if there's any way in me that you want to change because his desire to change you is one to help you to grow into Christ-likeness. It's one to help you to grow into joy and glory and, and, and it's for your cleansing. And so secondly, we're going to come on to cleansing. Cleansing. This is one of their responses. So first they were convicted and then they were wonderfully cleansed. And it says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. They grieved. They grieved their sin. They grieved how far short they fell from this law that God had set in place for them. We cannot attain this. And they grieved, a grief leading to salvation. I, I read uh, Romans 30 verse, uh, sorry, 3, verse 20 earlier on. It goes on to say, so it said that the law reveals our sinfulness. It goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe. There's this cleansing The law brings this recognition, I'm unworthy, I cannot attain this. And what do they do? They then respond to God's word. And the God's word that is said to them in verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't weep any longer. Don't cry. This is a holy day. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Whose joy? 
We often read that verse with the joy of the Lord, me enjoying God. That's my strength. No, it's, it's the joy of the Lord over you. That's your strength. The joy of the Lord over you is, 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 my, is a strength to me, to know he delights in me. But I've just read what he, uh, in the law, we've just had it read to us, they could say, that he's so far above us and I can never attain that. And now I'm under his judgment. Why would he ever accept me? Because of his joy over you. He's a God who enjoys you. Scholar C.G.I. Wong says this, it is Yahweh's joy over his people that is the basis for the hope that they will be saved or protected from his anger. Furthermore, Yahweh's joy is the basis of their protection from the consequences of their neglect of the law. His joy over you. It cleanses you. Don't cry anymore. Don't weep anymore. He delights in you. That's the joy of the Lord over them. It brings cleansing to them where they recognise we don't need to weep any longer. We don't need to be those who are uh, in danger. It says in Revelation 5, many of you know this great scene where at the end it says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to open the scroll of all history and redemption story? They looked around, there's no one to open the scroll. And then suddenly it says, weep no more. Weep no more. One is found. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. The response of, of the joy of the Lord over us is weep no more. There's cleansing for you. There's cleansing for us in Christ Jesus. And this is importance of how we respond to the word of God, how we reverently re read and uh, let the word of God speak to our hearts. This is my dad's book. He says, it's called uh, The Tide is Turning. He says this, knowing the truth releases us. We need to know what happened to us when Jesus died. Gospel truth not only prepares us for heaven, it releases us for life in the present. We need to know that our old self was crucified with him and that he who has died is free from sin. Many are condemned because they do not know. Many are still living under the oppression of the law because they do not know that Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. Many live under a heavy cloud because they do not know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through the very great and precious promises God has given, he's given us everything we need for life and godliness. The victory that overcomes the world is our faith and faith comes through hearing the word of God. The word of God then is central to restoration, both in our individual lives and in our church life. He goes on to quote Mark 6, where Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. Sheep without a shepherd, what do they need? They need healing, they need this, they need houses, they need looking after. He said, no, they need to be taught. They need to know the truth. They need to know who I am. They need to know what my father is like. And so this, this led our uh, Israelites in chapter 8 onto our third response, which is celebration. They've been convicted. Then they've been cleansed. And now, celebration, as we have this morning, been able to celebrate. I don't know why God would choose me. I recognise my sinfulness. I've recognised that I could never reach 
the heights of his holiness. But he's cleansed me. Which leads to celebration. A celebration that comes through. We see verse 12. Rejoicing because they had understood. Because they'd understood. Because something had opened up their understanding. Things aren't as we thought they were. We've understood something new. We don't need to weep any longer. They understood the words that were declared to them. They understood they've fallen short. They've understood they don't deserve his kindness. They, don't, they understood that they deserve his wrath, his anger. They understood, they understood they deserved his judgment. And yet they understand, weep no longer, it's a holy day. God's joy over you gives you strength. He is the great God. And you know one of the phrases in the word that is most often quoted about God, God's self-revelation, of what he says about himself, who he is. It's in Psalms and it's in other places. In Exodus, it says this, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is it's his self-revelation. I am gracious. I am merciful. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love. And they'd had this revelation. They'd understood the words that were declared to them. And it had caused them to, to come to a place of, of, of great celebration. And it says in verse 10, I don't know if you noticed this as we read through it earlier. He said, go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. Go and have a feast. This is the result of, of the kindness and the grace of God to us. Go and feast on it. Don't be those any longer that say, but surely I don't deserve. Go and feast. But what about go and feast? Eat the, the fatty meats. Have the sweet wine. Go and, 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 and know of his abounding love. His abundance love that is overflowing towards you. Go and celebrate it. Go and respond to it. Go and, and feast. Go and celebrate. And, and give. Give to anyone who has nothing ready. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. This is what abundance looks like. It's filled to overflow. It's filled to a place where you think, this isn't just for me. This isn't just I go on a Sunday and I feel a bit better about myself. But, oh God, this love is extraordinary. It overflows. It is abundant to me. I cannot hold this in anymore. I've got to give to those who don't know of it. This is the celebration that comes of, of the revelation of God's love in the Word. That in their conviction and then cleansing, they come to this place of abundant overflow. We can feast and we can bring others into this feast. The overwhelming love and mercy of God towards them caused them to overflow. Perhaps you have a tendency to think, if I'm looking after others all the time, who's looking after me? You ever thought that? Maybe you think that fairly often. Maybe you're fairly isolated or fairly lonely and you just think, I haven't got anything to give to anybody else. Can I suggest to you that you're not delighting in the abundant love of God towards you? It's a priority for us. 
as we did this morning. We, 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 we're not just singing songs. We need this. It's like us saying, God, I need to now go and sing. I need to go and celebrate. I, I need to, as Jude says in his letter, keep myself in the love of God. I need to do that. We can think of, uh, of the, the disciplines of reading our Bible and praying as, as homework, Christian homework. But Jude says, no, keep yourself in the love of God. This is, this is, I need to keep myself in the love of God. I need it so much. I need to, I need to pray. I need to sing. Because I've got I've to keep myself in this, this overflow from God, this abounding love. And this is where I find it. This is where I, I know his goodness towards me. This is where I, I learn of his grace towards me. I've got to go towards him and, and I've got to let him love me. Perhaps this, even this morning we can be praying that there'll be more revelation of the love of God. We have been praying that already. And that as we, uh, as we, as we just let him minister to us, that there will be revelation of his love towards us. And fourthly, they come on to concrete concrete obedience it says in verse 14 they found it written they found it written in the word something was in the word that they found and they responded verse 16 and onwards look at the verbs look at the verbs in here they went they brought they made booths they lived in and they kept in a response to what they found written, they didn't just think, yeah, that's good. I, I should really respond to that sometime. I really should, you know, I really should do something about that. No, they went. And so they went. And they brought. And they made what he asked them to make. And they lived in what he asked them to live in. And they kept what he asked them to keep. This is, this is the right response to the word of God. When God asks something of us, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to bring what he asked me to bring. I'm going to make what he asks me to make. I'm going to change my life. They lived in. Not just this, that's a nice ideology. I wish I could do it. They, they physically went. They physically responded. This is concrete obedience. And then they, they kept hold of what he had started in them. And it says the result of their obedience was great rejoicing. Great rejoicing. This is not a people who are, are saying, yeah, we had to do this, this and this. But as they responded, as they physically obeyed, as there was concrete obedience, they found a celebratory heart. They found great rejoicing came as the wisdom of God had taken priority in their life. It's an outworking of their celebration in the first place. All of these things follow, in from, follow on from one another. If you haven't had the conviction of your sin, there's not much to celebrate when you know God loves you. Well, why wouldn't he? I'm great. No, I'm convicted. I don't deserve it. And then I'm cleansed by his mercy, as we saw this morning. And then, and then, and then celebration as a result. And then I can obey. We've got to get that order right. It's one of the most important things in your Christian life, is to get that order right. That you don't think, I've got to keep God happy, or I've got to reach God by my works. We know, the, we know too well, I'm sure, we know Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. This is all of his grace towards me. I don't deserve any of this salvation, his love for me. But then verse 10 goes on to say, for we were God's, we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. It's this, this conviction, it's cleansing, celebration, and then out of that, obedience. As we see, he is good, he's for me. He's not withholding anything from me. It's an outward expression of an inward revelation, an inward state of change. And it's an important order for us to get right. It's what I said earlier. Jude says, keep yourself in the love of God. I want to keep myself in the love of God by doing what he asks me to do. It's not keeping him loving me. He loves me, but I've got to keep myself in that. That waterfall is unending. It's always there, but I've got to get underneath it. I've got to be one who, who responds to his word and is uh, reverent before his word. If he says he loves me, but I don't feel lovable. You put your feelings above what he says. He says that there's no guilt. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But I feel guilty. I feel condemned. You put your feelings above what he says. But what I did, he knows what you did. But in Christ Jesus, it's been punished at the cross. We've got to believe what he says and revere, not just revere and fear the things that we think, oh goodness, I'm supposed to be scared. No, fear and revere the wonderful, glorious things that he says about you. That you're the apple of his eye. But surely not me. He says it. It's got to be something in me that says, okay, God, I've got to learn what that is to respond to that. And I've got to learn what it is to take hold of that and to own it and to celebrate it. We've got to revere his word. We're going to revere what is, what is, what is heavy for us to understand. I've got to repent of that. We've also got to revere all the delightful things that he says. One day there'll be a new Jerusalem where there'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more sorrow. He says it. I've got to believe it. I've got to be filled with joy and expectation for my future. Not just be thinking, oh, who knows what's going to happen. He's a faithful God. I've got to revere what the word has revealed about him. So it turns us to celebration that leads on to obedience. And their obedience brought great rejoicing. So we're just going to, going to focus on that question. What is your attitude to God's word? This is a whole chapter that is, is so eye-opening. Amen, amen. Lifting up their holy hands. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is a people that as the word of God was said, amen, amen. Do you know what amen is? You may not think it's a, a, a Bible word. You don't know. It means we agree. We agree. We agree with what you say. You speak to us. Amen, amen. Lifting up their hands, surrendering and bowing their heads and worshipping the Lord with their faces to the ground. What is your attitude to God's word? What is the most difficult thing for you to obey in God's word? I want you to hear the truth today. Whatever that thing is that you might think, I really struggle with that bit of the Bible. I really struggle with obeying what he tells me to do in that bit. I don't really like it. I really want you to hear this today. Obeying that thing 
there is life in it for you. There is joy in obedience, in that thing. You may think, in our day and age, supposed to do that? If we revere the, the word of the Lord, if we say, amen, amen, I agree, there is joy, there is life for you in that thing. What is it that you find most difficult to obey in the word of God? And we see in Romans 8, God didn't withhold his very own son. He gave his best. He's not a God who withholds. He's not saying, oh good, I tricked them. He's not saying, oh, why would I give them that? He gave, he gave his very best. So whenever he's asking you, come follow me, follow me this way. I want to train you in righteousness. I want to bring you through in the way everlasting. We can trust he's not withholding from me. So today, today perhaps there are some things for you to question. Just, just concrete obedience. Have you been baptised? It's an act of obedience. God calls us who are in Christ Jesus to get baptised. If you haven't done that, it's one of those things where in reverence to God to say, I want to obey him. I help people go through the baptism process and they come to me and talk to me about what is baptism and can I get baptised? And we often ask, why do you want to get baptised? And if, if they say, because the Bible says I should, I say, great. It doesn't need to be deeper than that. God's called me to. I want to obey what he's called me to. Have you been baptised? Have you started giving financially? God calls us as his sons and daughters to trust him with our finances, to give out of worship. Do you tremble at his word? Do you pray? He calls us to prayer. He calls us to sing, to make a loud noise. Do you sing? Some of you think, that's just not really my bag. It's not really my thing. He calls us to do it. He calls us to celebrate him and sing to him. Do we, husbands, love our wives as Christ Love the church, laying our lives down for them. Wives, do you submit to your husbands? Older women, are you teaching the younger women? Young people, are you setting an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity? And are we keeping ourselves in the love of God? These are the things the word calls us to. We can say, I. Oh, I don't really like some of that stuff. I tend to stick with the stuff that makes me feel good about myself. God's saying, hey, it's really about me. It's really about him. And I, I want us to just, just finish by praying here in quite a, a sober way and just saying, God, if you're going to shape us, we need to be a people who are shaped by your word. Not by our feelings, not by our preferences. In fact, God, I want you to shape my feelings and my preferences. I want you to, to train me in righteousness. I want you to train me in wisdom. I know it leads to rejoicing. It leads to great rejoicing. And so we want to be a people who say, God, if we're going to see you move in our generation, in our lifetime, we've got to first see you move in us through reverence to your word. And we will see you move. Father God, we... I wonder if we might just stand... Father, we stand before you knowing that we actually come under you. We stand before you as your own. Those of us in this room that are in Christ Jesus have been redeemed, have been set free, 
we know there is no condemnation, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's cause for all celebration. We know that we're headed to this glorious union with you where there's no, no in-between anymore. What was once dim is now clear as we come before you one day and spend eternity with you. We, we come under your word and I do pray, Father God, for, for specific little things today that people have been saying, I've been putting that off for months, maybe years, maybe decades. I, I just cannot get my head around it. I don't want to do it. Oh God, please help us to be those who revere your word. I pray for those of us who just think, I, I know the rough bits here and there of, of God's word. I pray, Lord, give us a heart to say, I want intimacy. I want to know it intimately. I want to know his heart. I want to know what he's like. I want to be in awe of him. Help us, those who struggle with anxiety, as we look at the world, we look at the craziness around us, we look at how far people have fallen and run away from you, and yet we still aren't finding that you are our fortress and our strength. We're not finding confidence as we look at how you are the sovereign one in your word. Nothing shakes you. You have the world as your footstool. And Lord, if we're going to be those who reveal your word, it will lift up our heads to be a confident people in this generation. Lord, we want to pass it on to those in the next generation. But if we're going to do that, we're going to have to know it. So God, we pray, help us to be a people who say, God, God, I want to know you. I want to know you and I want to keep myself in the love of God. In the love of God as he reveals himself. And those bits of me that are grievous to you. Lord, would you show us? Just show us and lead us in your way everlasting. Individually and as a church in Ipswich and as your bride in this world. Show us. Lead us in the way everlasting, Lord. That we would be those who delight your hearts and tremble at your word. Yes, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.